I invite your attention to the reading of the scripture as found in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 6a. Romans 9, verses 1 to 6a. Hear the word of the Lord. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish, for I could wish, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. One of the heroes of the Christian faith, certainly uh, one of my personal heroes, is George Whitfield. I hope he's well known to you. Uh, if he's not, uh, George Whitfield uh, was an English uh, evangelist, preacher, and teacher in the 1700s. He had quite a remarkable uh, career as an itinerant preacher preached to thousands of people, thousands, crossed the Atlantic 13 times. But his uh, ministry was not without hardships. Uh, certainly crossing the Atlantic uh, in those days was, was a hardship. Uh, he was uh, banished from many church pulpits, so he took to the open air. And on one of his um, preaching tours, this is in 1744, his first child became ill and died. A few years later, Whitfield's second child died in infancy as well. So Whitfield writes a letter to a friend. And he says this, he says, I find the only way to get and to keep our comforts is to explain God's providence by His promise and not His promise by His providence. So what does that story have to do with Romans 9? <laughs> I think it has everything to do with it. And it makes the rest of the chapter 9 through chapter 11 so very relevant for us today. For you see, we are the beneficiaries of so many promises of God. The letter to uh, the Romans is full of promises. I invite you, I uh, hope you have your Bibles, uh, open to Romans chapter 1. We'll survey some of these promises. In fact, it'll be very helpful to you to have your Bible open <laughs> this morning. So Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's not just a, a declaration, it is a promise. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the promise is that the gospel is the power of God for your salvation. Turn to chapter 4, uh, verse 17. Uh, here, uh, Paul is uh, drawing out of the Old Testament the example of Abraham uh, to prove that uh, we are justified by faith and not by works. Verse 17, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and Abraham believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, there are three of the greatest promises to those who have been justified by faith. The first great promise is that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Second, through Him we also have access into the grace in which we stand. And third, we have the hope of the glory of God. Now you can flip over to Romans 8, verse 39. And again, one of the... Uh, uh, preeminent promises of all of, of the Bible. Nothing, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, that is a declaration, but it is also a promise. We take these promises by faith and we hope in them. But we're hoping in what is unseen. Again, from Romans 8, verse 24, Now hope that is seen is not hope, but we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. So we can't see peace with God. We can't see grace into which we now stand, nor can we see the glory in which we hope. Yet in contrast to the things that we do not see, there are the things that we do see. All the things of providence. We see those. We see them all the time. Globally, we see Christians suffering from the spread of disease, from the spread of lawlessness and violence, governmental oppression. Personally, we see all sorts of hard circumstances and seemingly one dark providence after another. So in the face of all that we see, the challenge is to do what Whitfield was suggesting 
to get and to keep our comfort by explaining God's providence in our life by His promise to us and not His promise to us by His providence. This is precisely, I think, what Paul is addressing in chapters 9 to 11 of Romans. And the better we understand these chapters, the better I think we will keep our comfort in our own distressing and perplexing circumstances. So here's what I hope to do this morning with God's help. To take us through these chapters, Romans 9 to 11, so we'll have a deeper appreciation for God's unfailing word and his promise to all believers. Well, the first step in understanding any passage of Scripture is to understand the context. There is a context, both historically and a literary context, to these chapters. Briefly, historically, Paul was writing to the church in Rome, which was a mixed congregation of Gentile and Jewish Christians. We gather this because throughout the letter, Paul will use the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verse 14, uh, Paul will deliver uh, directions for living together. Do not pass judgment on one another regarding what you eat, whether clean or unclean, or what days you esteem. Do not let that affect your living together, dear Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And at the end of the letter, Paul will write a number of greetings, most of them to Gentile believers, but notably, he gives greetings to his kinsmen. Romans 16 and verse 7, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Verse 11 of chapter 16, greet my kinsman Herodian. So that's the historical context. In terms of the literary context, again, you look to the larger context of the, the letter. Why is Paul writing the letter? And we glean that from uh, chapter 1. He, he states his apostolic commission for all of his ministry. He says in verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to fulfill um, the apostolic um, commission to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations and including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Specifically for uh, the church in Rome in verse 11, he says uh, he desires to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And again, 15, verse 15, he just he states his desire to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. The immediate context of the first uh, paragraph of Romans 9, and indeed all of Romans 9 to 11, is what comes at the very end of chapter 8. And I invite you to turn there with me. Chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the context that sets up chapters 9 to 11. And so with that context, what do you observe uh, as Paul begins this discussion in chapter 9? Well, there's an unmistakable shift in mood. It's like falling off a cliff. Paul moves from the heights of extolling the glories of the unconquerable love of God for us to the depths of sorrow and anguish of heart for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites. Why was he lamenting them? <clears throat> he was lamenting what could be seen regarding the state of the nation of Israel. And what did Paul see? And not just Paul, the whole world. What could they see? Everyone saw a nation in ruin. In spite of having all the advantages mentioned in verses 4 and 5, there was no real Jewish state, no Jewish kingdom. They were under the foot of Rome. And Jerusalem was no great shining city on a hill serving as a light to the nations. Most of them were accursed and cut off from Christ, cut off from the Messiah and the Messianic promises. That's what everyone saw. What had happened to the Israelites was so sad and heart-wrenching that Paul would have gladly traded places for their sake. We get a lot of insight, I think, into Paul's heart with that statement. What love he had for his kinsmen. You remember in verse uh, or chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Well, here Paul is willing to be cursed of God and cut off from Christ, if that would mean salvation for his people and kinsmen. I ask myself, would I be willing to do that for anybody? And who among you would be willing to do that, to have such great a love that you would trade places with them? So how do you square the state of Israel with what God previously gave to them and promised them. Look at that list again. To them belong the adoption, the glory, 
the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. No other nation in all the history of the world had such promises and privileges. Why Israel? Why did they have them? The answer is for one reason only. God simply chose to love them. I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7. As you turn there, the preface is Moses is telling the people of the Exodus who they are and why God is bringing them out of Egypt in captivity. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. So I ask you again, how do you square the state of Israel on a national basis with what God had said about His love for them? And let me suggest, if you can't square those two things, then you will have a real problem having any confidence in God's Word that says nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if you cannot square those two things, then you will have a hard time explaining God's providence in your life with God's promise to you as Whitfield did in a time of sorrow and anguish for his child. James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, put the heart of the issue like this. He says, Paul has completed a chapter in which the eternal security of the believer has been unfolded in glowing and profoundly moving terms. But can we really believe that? Can we really believe that? If, as an observable fact, those upon whom God had previously set His electing love, the Jewish people, have been cast off. It is all very well to affirm that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But can we believe that if many Jews, who as a people who have preceded us in the long historical unfolding plan of salvation, have been abandoned by God and are lost? So you see the issue? Well, thankfully, Paul will square these things for us as he answers the unasked question that's behind his lament for Israel. What is that unasked question? It's simple. Did God's word fail concerning Israel? 
We understand this is the unasked question because Paul's statement in verse 6 is the answer. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now having made this emphatic statement that God's Word has not failed, Paul must explain why. And that's precisely where he goes over the course of the rest of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 11. And let's follow his train of thought. To explain that God's Word has not failed Israel and will not fail, Paul will do three things. First, he will explain that God has, in fact, been keeping His promise. Second, he will show that Israel's large-scale failure is, in fact, their own fault. And third, Paul will look towards Israel's future and find hope for his kinsmen. And as we follow Paul through these chapters, keep in mind uh, the two concerns, the, the large concerns that are intertwined for Paul. First, his concern for defending the unfailing nature of God's Word as it relates to Israel, but more broadly as it relates to the nations of the world. And his equal concern for finding comfort regarding the salvation of his kinsmen. He's already expressed his deep concern for that in the opening chapter of verse 9 or chapter 9. He repeats it in uh, chapter 10, verse 1 My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his kinsmen, is that they may be saved. Keep in mind, too, that Paul ultimately resolves these concerns with Scripture. And so you'll see the repeated phrase, as it is written. As it is written. As it is written is code for biblical explanations for unfolding events. Okay, okay so let's look at Paul's threefold uh, proof that God's Word is unfailing. Part one is that God's Word has not failed Israel because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God's Word has not failed the children of the promise. In fact, He has been preserving them, though they are just a remnant. And that part one is uh, chapter 9, verse 6 through verse 29. The declaration of the point is in verses 6 to 8, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For, and here is the explanation, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And that's a direct quote from Genesis 21, verse 12. This means, okay, now Paul is going to explain what this means, that there is the children of the promise as distinguished from the mere children of the flesh, right? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul then traces out the promised offspring through Jacob because verse 13, as it is written, okay, there's a marker. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's a quote from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. 
Well, here is where it is so easy to get knotted up in the doctrine of election and God having mercy upon whom he will in hardening whom he will. My counsel to you regarding the doctrine of election is to embrace it so far as God reveals it in Scripture. And you don't seek to understand the depths of it because you never will. God has not revealed the depth of that. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to God, okay? But those that is, things that have been revealed to us are for us and our children. And I affirm the doctrine of election. And it is a great source of comfort. But again, do not get all knotted up in it here. Don't lose sight of what Paul is attempting to do and what his goal is in these chapters. Election is not the main point of this. It's simply part of Paul's support for his main point that God is true to his word and his promises. It's worth mentioning uh, that Malachi, where he takes this from, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, is a message of hope to Israel after their captivity in Babylon. In fact, I invite you to take your Bibles and let's look at Malachi briefly. So Malachi <clears throat> chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And here's the answer that the Lord gives through the prophet. How, in fact, the Lord has loved Israel. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste Esau's hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom, which is the land of Esau, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So to answer the question, how has the Lord loved us? He answers that by saying, look to the descendants of Esau. God has laid waste their land. They, will, they may rebuild, but they will not rebuild forever. God will tear it down. Why? Because though Jacob and Esau were brothers, God chose Jacob and his offspring and rejected Esau and his offspring. The offspring of Jacob will not be like the offspring of Esau, for the offspring of Jacob have a future. You can look at Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Get that? The covenant in whom you delight. Behold, is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's a future. 
And you can look at Malachi 3, verses 16 to 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, because there was much in Malachi that were warnings to the house of Israel. They spoke to one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves them. And that so beautifully squares with Paul's quote of Isaiah in Romans 9, verses 27 to 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God is keeping His promise to the remnant. Okay? Because He has not obliterated the nation or cut them off forever like the offspring of Esau. This is part one. Within the nation of Israel, there coexist children of the promise, the elect within the nation, the true offspring of faithful Abraham, the remnant whom God has preserved even to this day according to His promise. And there are the children of the flesh whom God has cut off from Christ. Now, part two of Paul's argument. God's Word has not failed among the Israelites. It was rather their own failure regarding the obedience of the faith. That's why they have been cast off. This part extends from chapter 9, verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 21. And here are the proof texts, the key texts about Israel's failure, their own fault. Okay. Uh, chapter 9, verse 31 to 32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Here's the explanation. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10, verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So part two is this, Israel failed on a large scale, not God, because in disobedience they rejected Christ as the promised Messiah and the salvation by grace through faith in Him. Now to part three of Paul's defense of God's unfailing word, which is this, all Israel will be saved. This is takes up the entire uh, chapter 11. Follow Paul's train of thought here. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? And the answer is, by no means. 
Verse 2, God has not rejected the people He foreknew. Verses 3-5, to as in the days of Elijah, when it looked like He was the only believing Israelite left in the land, God said, it's not so. I have kept for myself more than you could understand. 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, says Paul, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And the answer, by no means. Skip down to verses 25 to 27. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brother. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What a defense of God's unfailing Word and His continuing love for Israel. Yes, a large part of ethnic Israel has been rejected and cast off, but those who have been cut off were not the children of the promise. Those who were cast off were the disobedient one who would not believe the gospel and accept the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. And what we see now, as Paul is saying, is a partial and temporary thing. And during this partial hardening of Israel, God has done the most amazing thing. You know what it is? Verses 11 and 12. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Israel's failures meant riches for the Gentiles, for you and for me. But even that is part of God's plan for the salvation of Israel. Paul says Gentiles are streaming into the kingdom of God so as to make Israel jealous of what they have by faith. And so some of Israel will believe the gospel and be saved. That's verse 14. And oh, if Israel's failure means riches for the world... He says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Again, verses 26 to 27, there will yet come a time when the Deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob and take away their sins. As regards the Gospel... They are enemies for your sake. Israel is an enemy for the sake of you, the Gentiles. But as regards election, look, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Notice the deliverer will come. That is future and yet to happen. And I say, wow, what a comfort that must have been for Paul's anguish and sorrow for his kinsmen. 
Now step back and survey where Paul has taken us in these chapters. The movement from the heights to the depths and back again to the heights. Paul ends chapter 8 with the heights of the incomparable, never-failing love of God for us in Christ Jesus. But then he descends into the depth of lament for his kinsmen Israel. And from the depths of great sorrow and unceasing anguish, he begins to raise his thoughts and hopes for Israel. His first step upward is the declaration that God's word has not failed. There is yet a spiritual Israel within the cast-off nation. God has not obliterated Israel like Sodom and Gomorrah, but He's preserved a remnant chosen by grace. Second step upward, God is holding out His hands, holding out His hands, it says, to a disobedient and contrary people. God's not rejected them. Israel has stumbled, but not so as to fall forever. And in their failure, the gospel has gone out to the world. And he says that the Gentiles have been grafted into the tree. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and take away their sins. And think about that. How are sins taken away? The future of Israel is not the reinstitution of the sacrifice and blood of bulls and goats. Not by works of the law. Sins are taken away only by faith in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That is the clear testimony of Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. I think what Paul is saying here is that the sons and the daughters of Israel will at some point in great masses follow in the footsteps of Father Abraham. They will believe in Jesus Christ and their faith will be counted to them as righteousness, as did their father Abraham and the patriarchs Jacob, Isaac. How else then could Paul end this Uh, excursion, but then to extol the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's the very end of all of this. Back to the heights again, okay? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, I believe and I hope you agree that Paul has squared the seen and the unseen. What can be seen regarding the nation of Israel and the unseen promise and love of God that explains all that is going on. He has demonstrated that God's Word is unfailing. And so when he says nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can trust that for ourselves. So let me bring this home. We all live in the providence of God. And the seasons of providence change. As said in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to weep. The time to laugh, the time to mourn, and a time to dance. And we will all weep and mourn over a myriad of things over the course of our lives. Perhaps the death of a loved one. 
There again, you have to trust in the unseen things because what your eyes see, the seen things, is what? The body of your loved one in a casket. The six-foot hole in the ground. The casket lowered in and covered with dirt. To the eye, it looks like death is one. But the unseen thing is in the Lord, there is yet a future, a resurrection. So you may mourn the death of a loved one. You may mourn perhaps a wandering child, perhaps the loss of employment, perhaps division between a friend or a brother perhaps the loss of civil liberties. Whatever you may mourn, remember Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. Here it is. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. How is that? That makes no sense. How can your heart be glad when tears express your sadness and brokenheartedness? The answer to that is by doing what Whitfield and Paul did. They found hope and they kept their comforts by explaining God's providence, the things that they could see by His promise, the unseen thing. When providence rests hard upon you, find promises in God's Word to lift up your aching heart. And then, bless God for His unfailing Word, His unconquerable love, and the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And when you do that, you will be able to say with the psalmist that we began with this morning, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life.